Welcome to the BICOM podcast. I'm Jack Omer Jackman, BICOM's Research Associate, and I'm joined today for a discussion on US-Israel relations and the prospective normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia by Ambassador Daniel Kurtzer. We're speaking a week after Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu visited the US to meet with President Biden and to address the UN General Assembly. A week two after, after Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman told Fox News that every day we get closer to normalization. Ambassador Kurtzer is the S. Daniel Abraham Professor in Middle Eastern Policy Studies at the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. He previously served as U.S. Ambassador to Egypt from 1997 to 2001 and to Israel from 2001 until 2005, when he retired after a 29-year career in the U.S. Foreign Service. He was a crafter of the 1988 Peace Initiative of Secretary of State George B. Schultz and was instrumental in bringing about the Madrid Peace Conference in 1991. He's the co-author of Negotiating Arab-Israeli Peace, American Leadership in the Middle East, and of The Peace Puzzle, America's Quest for Arab-Israeli Peace, 1989 to 2011. Ambassador, welcome. Thank you. Let's start with your general assessment of President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu's meeting last week. Um, was it as you expected or were there any surprises? Well, President Biden has made clear since uh, he took office that he was not interested in uh, anything but a decent relationship with uh, Israel and with Prime Minister Netanyahu. Uh, and that's been the case even after Netanyahu formed what could only be described as a coalition composed of some extremists. President has been temperate in his uh, words and attitude, focused um, pretty singularly on the uh, question of the judicial overhaul being proposed by the Israeli coalition, but uh, has been careful not to allow uh, his concerns about the direction of Israeli democracy to impact uh, U.S.-Israeli relations. Netanyahu spoke in, when, in his remarks in, in very unified language on preventing a nuclear Iran. Does that language belie differences of strategy behind the scenes? Um, can you clarify any, any current divisions that you see between Israel and the US on this question? Well, there's always been a, uh, a concerted view between the United States and Israel in trying to prevent Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapons capability. But we have always differed on uh, the right tactics. Israel, as you recall, opposed uh, very vocally the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action and uh, both encouraged uh, President Trump to pull out from that agreement and applauded the decision of the United States to pull out. Uh, we still differ on uh, how to achieve the objective of stopping an Iranian nuclear program, but uh, there is no difference of view and no daylight between us on the ultimate objective. I think what the president and the prime minister talked about and continued to be part of our strategic dialogue is what's the best way to do that through deterrence, through uh, diplomacy, through uh, coercive uh, activities. Uh, but uh, I think there's still a gulf between our positions with regard to those tactics and tools. Following the, the latest uh, release of US prisoners, uh, from Iran, but also Iranian belligerence in, in banning some of the IAEA inspectors. What's your view on, on the prospects of US and Iran reaching an understanding to limit the nuclear program? I think one has to be relatively pessimistic uh, and sober with respect to that possibility. Um, 
experts on this issue uh, believe that it is simply not possible any longer. Uh, first, because Iran, uh, since the United States pullout in 2018 uh, from the agreement, has begun enriching uranium at a much more significant level <clears throat> that had been allowed under the JCPOA. And so it's going to be hard, perhaps impossible, to put that genie back in the bottle. Uh, second, um, without uh, that agreement in force, uh, the incentives uh, for Iran uh, really don't exist anymore. Uh, surely there's concern in Iran about sanctions, but they have found a way to uh, essentially circumvent uh, the some of the most significant aspects of sanctions. Uh, and so there's a bit of an impasse here where uh, most of the world uh, supports the idea of Iran not acquiring a nuclear weapons capability, but uh, the pathway to achieve that is uh, is now uh, quite challenging, uh, even more so because what used to be relative unity among the so-called P5 plus one, the five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany, who were the main negotiators of the JCPOA, uh, that unity has collapsed as uh, largely as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thank you. Let's let's turn to now to the to the issue of Saudi normalization. Before we get to the the specifics of any Israel Saudi deal, I'd like to touch on the Biden administration's appetite for it. Um, Biden took office in the wake of Khashoggi promising to get tough with the Saudis. What's changed? Well, the president, as candidate uh, before the last election, uh, called Saudi Arabia pariah state and indicated that we were very concerned about the direction of Saudi policy and its human rights activities. Uh, I think uh, once take once having taken office, uh, the president has begun to focus much more on uh, those areas where there continue to be shared interests. Uh, we still have a major difference of view with Saudi Arabia on values. Uh, their human rights uh, activities are still quite abhorrent, uh, including uh, you know, efforts to to uh, muzzle the uh, the royal family uh, by the leadership, uh, let alone uh, other opposition elements within the society. Uh, so the the values the uh, debate uh, has not changed, but uh, particularly inroads made by China and uh, concerns about uh, the relative stability of oil supply and oil prices. I think have had an impact on the administration, which now uh, tends to uh, elevate this question of where we have shared interests and is trying to find ways to um, strengthen those shared interests, including the possibility of uh, seeing an end to the war in Yemen, which has a whole range of other implications that are important for uh, all of us. It seems as though Saudi agreement to normalization is is largely dependent partially on a, on a defense pact uh, with the United States. To secure that, Biden will need two thirds of the Senate to ratify such an agreement. Firstly, will he get a yay vote from all Democrats? Will, will they park their objections to the Saudi regime and afford him a win, objections of the type you've just described? And secondly, with a presidential election approaching, will there be sufficient Republicans bipartisan enough to help him? You know, it's, it's a, uh... Uh, it's a habit in Washington and I'm sure in London to try to make these forecasts. But the 
the devil will be in the details of whatever the United States and Saudi Arabia agree. Uh, so it's hard to say whether or not Democrats will line up in support of it. It's hard to say if Republicans will line up in support. Uh, one has to see the extent to which um, commitments uh, requested by the Saudis of the United States uh, impact um, the significant political interests of, of those members of the Senate who have to uh, look at ratifying a possible treaty. Um, and you have a, a variety of uh, ways in which uh, some of the most contentious issues can be addressed that don't cross uh, political red lines in Washington. For example, it's hard to imagine that a full-blown defense treaty with provisions that are similar to Article 5 in the NATO uh, uh, alliance uh, would ever be agreed. Uh, the United States, I, I don't see any chance uh, that the United States would uh, sign on to a commitment to come to Saudi's defense under any and all circumstances. Uh, would the United States be prepared to provide some additional defense uh, uh, some efforts to uh, provide defensive uh, weapons and support for Saudi Arabia? Uh, I think the answer is yes. Uh, they're particularly vulnerable to uh, missile and rocket attacks. Uh, we can certainly help in that regard. Um, there could be the beginning of a range of strategic consulta consultation forums, uh, which will narrow gaps between our understanding of the threat and how to deal with it. So, you know, it may end up being called a treaty, but um, it, we really are going to have to look at the details of what um, what the United States has committed to and what the, uh, the Saudis uh, on their side have committed to. The treaty, in fact, is going to work in two directions. Um, so I don't I don't want to project how the Senate will act. It will be hard under many circumstances to get 80 votes, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, 67 votes in the uh, Senate, uh, in large part because of an issue that probably won't be in the treaty, and that's the human rights situation. Uh, so, you know, the administration has a a, a rough road to uh, to pursue in, uh, in trying to get this uh, Saudi-U.S. relationship uh, moving forward. Let's stay with, with, with Washington politics just for a moment. Do you agree with with those who who suggest that in terms of Israel Saudi normalization and the U.S. brokered normalization that it's that it's now or never that under a Republican administration the votes couldn't be found from opposite opposition Democrats? No, I, I think that's a um, let me call it short sighted analysis. I don't want to call it foolish. I, I want to be polite. Um, the reality is that Saudi Arabia and Israel have been cooperating for many years. Um, as you noted in the introduction to this program, uh, I worked with uh, the Bush administration back in 1991 in bringing about the Madrid Peace Conference, which launched a process in which Saudi Arabia and Israel sat in meetings together in our steering group and in various working groups. And they talked to each other. And since then, that uh, those conversations have led to uh, concrete areas of cooperation. So if this administration and the Saudi government are unable at this point to reach an agreement, it doesn't mean the end of the line. It just means that uh, different circumstances may present different opportunities. Uh, 
you know, in the area of speculation, um, it's hard to say that Republicans will be against something when, in fact, uh, former President Trump was a major proponent of building the relationship with Saudi Arabia. So if the Republicans come back to power in the White House, one can envisage uh, a resumption of that uh, courtship between uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia. Uh, so again, it's it's premature to speculate, but I don't think there are any circumstances in which um, a failure to reach agreement now um, has long-term implications for uh, the future of the relationship. Thank you. Another another Saudi um, condition, or as as reported, seems to surround their, their purportedly civilian nuclear ambitions. Uh, we've seen voices in the U.S., such as the the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies oppose agreeing to to those uh, those demands well well this week we've seen suggestion also that netanyahu is instructing israeli officials to explore us run saudi enrichment how strong are these anti anti enrichment voices in the us and and could could they scupper a deal could this issue scupper a deal you know it's a little it's been a little surprising to me to see the news reports that israel is uh, examining ways in which enrichment um, and the full fuel cycle can take place on Saudi soil. I think in some respects, the United States is going to be tougher on this issue than apparently the Israelis are. Uh, a lot of the pushback against the uh, nuclear agreement with Iran had to do with the fact that it legitimized uh, a certain level of enrichment on Iranian soil. And that's the first time that the United States had bought into that idea uh, it's not that we've stopped it in other cases, but uh, it's the difference between trying to stop it and, and legitimizing it. And so I frankly, I, I could be wrong, but I frankly don't believe that um, there will be a formula found that would allow Saudi Arabia to enrich on, uh, on its soil. That doesn't mean that the United States and Saudi Arabia can't find a way to have a robust civilian nuclear program. Uh, with assurances uh, of the availability of uh, uranium for use in their civilian program, whether it's for power generation or for medical technologies and so forth. But um, thinking about enrichment on Saudi soil, even with intrusive verification and inspection and a U.S. role, I think is going to be uh, beyond the red line. Just to, to pick up on something you said there, you mentioned surprise at some of the reports coming out of Israel that that uh, the, the Israeli government may be may be keener on this aspect than than Washington. Is that is your surprise that it seems to be a relaxation of of the Begin doctrine? Oh, for sure. Uh, we know the Begin doctrine since uh, at least eighty one, when Israel attacked the Osirak reactor in Iraq, and then in two thousand seven when they attacked the reactor in Syria, has been very firm that Israel for, Israel articulates that policy that it will not permit a full-blown nuclear weapons program uh, in the neighborhood. And it operates on the basis of the so-called Begin Doctrine. Um, so having a civilian nuclear program is one thing, but once there is a, a complete fuel cycle that's permitted as part of that program, uh, even with uh, inspections and verification and adherence to uh, the IAEA additional protocol and the so-called 123 agreement from the United States, 
uh, it's just surprising that Israel would countenance uh, that in, a, in an Arab country, even one that it may end up signing a peace treaty. Um, my guess is, uh, of course, I don't speak for Israel, but my guess is that Israel would oppose uh, such developments, even in the two countries with which it has, neighboring countries with which it has peace treaties uh, as part of their overall security concerns. So, yeah, I am surprised by this. Thank you. I'd like to turn now to, to the Palestinian. What's your estimation of the Palestinian element, first in the American and then in the Saudi positions? We hear plenty of speculation of both a sort of minimalist and a maximalist approach. Some say that that more money from Riyadh and, and Israel fulfilling the commitments it's recently made at Aqaba and Sham. Others say something far more far-reaching, concrete steps towards a two-state solution. What's your, what's your take? Well, I think you accurately described the continuum uh, in which these uh, issues uh, are being uh, debated. There are reports coming out of uh, Palestinian meetings with the Saudis that there are, I think, 14 demands that uh, run the gamut from uh, recognition of Palestinian statehood to all kinds of other things that, you know, freezing of settlements and so forth. Uh, and then there's the argument being made in some circles here in Washington and in Israel that uh, Palestinians, having been mistaken in that view for having opposed the earlier Abraham Accords, should be satisfied with um, economic benefits and uh, some rhetorical support by Israel for two states, but uh, probably not much else. And so it's really going to be a, a, a question of very tough, very tough negotiating um, with a variety of partners with very different interests to see whether the minimum Palestinian demands can match the maximum of what Israel's ready to concede and how that fits in with Saudi uh, policy and Saudi views, because they're watching not only normalization with Israel and a bilateral relationship with the United States, but they're also watching their internal situation and the situation in the uh, in the Islamic world. So uh, this is about as complex a, uh, a negotiation as possible. And the Palestinian dimension uh, is not clear at all, uh, given the, um, as I call it, the continuum of views that we're hearing running from the minimal to the maximal. Just to stay with that for a moment, I mean, Again, judging judging on the on the reports we're having of these negotiations, there there is some sort of rather ironic suggestions that just as the Israelis are perhaps surprisingly more open to a, a nuclear Saudi than than Washington, that in some senses Washington's demands on the Palestinians' behalf are actually perhaps further or, or, or more considerable than than those from from Riyadh. Um, firstly, do you think there's any any accuracy to that? But also, you know, is it is it helpful for for Washington to, to to be attaching perhaps perhaps those more ambitious demands on the process? Well, that's an answerable question, but I don't have the answer. In other words, um, we don't know what um, the administration's demands are, uh, both with respect to uh, Israel vis-a-vis uh, -vis the Palestinians, or with respect to the Saudis. You know, if there's going to be a treaty. Uh, between the United States and Saudi Arabia, it's, there will be demands that we will make of the Saudis, perhaps regarding uh, oil production and, and price, uh, 
perhaps uh, involving the activities of outside powers in the region, such as uh, China and Russia. So we don't know yet what the administration, um, where its uh, views are with respect to Palestinian issues. Um, and there's also, of course, for, for Washington, a, a very significant political element. We're, we're now, what, uh, 13 months out from a what's going to be a very hard-fought presidential election. And the allure of having a signing ceremony of Israeli-Saudi normalization is pretty significant. Uh, so that might argue for reducing the demands with respect to the Palestinians. On the other hand, we know that uh, there's great concern in Washington about the direction of the Israeli coalition, which might suggest more significant demands uh, of Israel. Um, so you have all these, uh, you know, it's like whack-a-mole, um, trying to, to keep all these uh, various factors under control when so many of them run in, uh, in opposite directions. Let's shift topic uh, now to, to one you mentioned in, in your first answer, actually. At his meeting with Netanyahu, Biden's remarks on the Israeli judicial reform were perhaps milder than we might have expected. There was talk of democratic values and checks and balances, but, but nothing stronger. What do you make of that? How, how, and how great is the concern for Israeli democracy in Washington right now? My strong assessment and belief is that Biden's views on this uh, have not changed from an earlier period several months ago when he was quite vocal publicly. I think what has changed, um, and we saw it in the in the joint uh, uh, appearance, was uh, his willingness to make some of those concerns public. Uh, I would not be surprised at all if the private conversation was tough. Um, and I'm frankly not surprised that the public iteration of US policy was milder than Perhaps it, it might have been under other circumstances. Uh, the president, after all, is uh, he's a political um, animal, and uh, he's been a diplomat for a long time and uh, may have decided that he didn't want to constrain Netanyahu's ability to uh, slow down, if not stop, the judicial overhaul by fencing him in with public statements. And that may be a tactic on the president's part to give Netanyahu a chance to figure out how to deal with a very unruly coalition without having uh, an American statement uh, hovering over those deliberations. I mean, a related question. So asking you to, to assess the kind of Israeli political landscape. How, how do you assess the relative difficulty of the hurdles that Netanyahu might have to overcome domestically to push ahead with, with normalization. We have nuclear issue, we've discussed, the Saudi nuclear issue we've discussed, potential American um, demands on the on the judicial reform issue, or, or, or demands regarding the Palestinians. Which of those is going to be the most difficult needle to thread? Look, I have maintained for quite some time uh, what might be called a devil's theory, um, uh, in which and I wrote a piece uh, called uh, something like Smotrich is playing chess and the rest of us are playing checkers. Um, the way I assess the Israeli coalition, the, the, particularly the, the far right extreme members of the coalition, uh, judicial overhaul is important to them, but it's, it, it's important as a means of clearing the way for what they really want, which is uh, 
the juridical uh, uh, annexation of uh, uh, some, if not all, of the occupied territories. Uh, and they know that unless the power of the Supreme Court is curbed and the power of, um, for example, legal advisors in various ministries uh, is curbed and other aspects of the judicial overhaul, they will have trouble seeing through the annexationist uh, intentions. So if that devil's theory is correct, and if it is correct, Netanyahu knows it as well as anybody, then he has room to maneuver by, in a sense, be willing to pause on the judicial overhaul as a sop to the administration while paying uh, in coin to the coalition by supporting some of the 225 pieces of legislation that are on the Knesset docket, many of which deal with annexation. And so there's a, there's a, as complex as the, the trilateral or quadrilateral negotiations are, there's also the internal Israeli negotiations where I think, I think Netanyahu has room to maneuver. He doesn't have room if it, if it's a, if the issue is a settlements freeze, for example, because that cuts at the heart, cuts to the heart of what his coalition members want. But I think he's got room to maneuver on judicial overhaul uh, because that's a it's it's not the main issue. It's a pathway to the main issue, which can be accomplished in other ways. Thank you. Let's let's move to an entirely different different front and one that's that's occupied um, American American diplomacy with Israel for the last couple of years. Has American pressure on the Israelis to do more to support the Ukrainian war effort been dropped? I don't think so. Um, we haven't had much success. Periodically, the Israelis will deliver something like humanitarian uh, support or non-lethal um, equipment. I don't see any diminution in the U.S. interest in having Israel do more, but I also don't see that the U.S. is pressing Israel harder. Um, some of that may be attributable to the fact that uh, our, we ourselves are providing so much more sophisticated equipment that the Ukrainian need for what Israel could provide maybe has diminished a little bit. But I, I think it's still on the agenda. But uh, you're right; you don't you don't hear as much now as you uh, as you did a while ago. Very very true indeed. I, I mean, is there is there what general understanding of the of the kind of the Israeli calculation with regard to to its relations with Russia and Russian Russian influence in Syria, for example, has that has that been understood as a as a reason for Israeli reluctance to be more involved? You know, I once had a uh, when I was ambassador in Israel, I had a whole discussion with Israelis about the various meanings of the word understand, and in Hebrew <laughs> and English, one can one can get quite confused. I think we probably understand. Israel's views on this matter, but that does not mean that there is an understanding uh, between us. Sure. And I think I think we differ fundamentally, but intellectually, yeah. I mean, we can we can see that Israel has relations and interests and so forth, but I don't think we accept them um, with any kind of validity, and that's why I assume we continue to push, even if we're not hearing much about it.
Thank you. One final question, Ambassador. I had a nice moment of uh, serendipity this week. I'm currently reading Gidi Grinstein and uh, Ari Afalalo's book, Insights, 30 Years of Peacemaking in the Oslo Process, early in which Grinstein recalls visiting you in Cairo in 1999 during your, your time as ambassador to Egypt and, and being rather blown away by the depth and breadth of your diplomatic analysis and uh, indeed your powers of prediction. Reflecting on your time in both Egypt and Israel, how do you feel that neighbourly relationship has developed since? Well, you know, in addition to my services ambassador, um, I also served in Egypt as a relatively more junior officer back in 79 to 82, which was at right at the beginning of the uh, Egyptian-Israeli normalization process. And one of my responsibilities in the embassy was keeping Washington abreast of the negotiations between those two countries on normalization. And they ended up agreeing to, I think, 51 or 52 agreements, which remain on the books. Almost none of them has been fulfilled with the spirit in which they were negotiated or, or intended to be implemented. Uh, although I don't think there's been violations of the letter of the agreements. So our expectations with regard to Egyptian-Israeli uh, normalization relations uh, have always been tempered by uh, a reality in which um, an Egyptian government that has remained extremely faithful to the treaty, even when there was a uh, Muslim Brotherhood president, uh, Mohamed Morsi, uh, that uh, attitude of maintaining fealty to the treaty has even though we're now, what, 40 years, 40-something uh, years past the treaty, has not really filtered down to the public at large. Uh, there's still great influence by um, uh, media, both public media and social media, uh, with regard to the plight of Palestinians. When Israel conducts activities in the occupied territories, they are um, very often exaggerated in the Egyptian media, which only tends then to uh, further concretize this idea that Israel is a, 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 a treaty partner, but not necessarily a friend. So I, I disappointed, yes. Um, one hoped, I recall when I was in Cairo in 1979, uh, asking why there wasn't an agreement being negotiated for sports cooperation, you know, having the two football teams play each other. And the Egyptians thought I was crazy. They said, that's one way to go back at war. If <laughs> if uh, if the two football teams play each other and the, the, the it doesn't come out a tie. So um, yeah, disappointed, but not surprised. Um, and as long as the, the essential nature of the security um, annexes to the treaty remain intact, um, as disappointed as I am on normalization, I'm not worried about uh, a change in the in the relationship. Ambassador, thank you for joining us for today's podcast, for your time and your insight into issues whose development we'll all continue to watch with great interest. Thank you very much. Well, my pleasure. Thank you too to our listeners. We look forward to bringing you another Bicom podcast soon. Mm -hmm.